Hi, this is Ashley. And this is Kristen. And this is a thousand miles of true crime. Today we're going to be covering the John Bonet Ramsey case. I'm excited about this. I don't know very much about this case, but I know that you do. And isn't this what kind of turned you into a true crime junkie or true crime fanatic? Yeah, I I do think this is the case that did it for me, to be honest. So I was eight when it happened and she was six. And I just remember it being all over the news. Do you remember you like couldn't even go to the grocery store without seeing her picture just like plastered all over all the tabloids and she was just kind of everywhere. So I do remember seeing it on the tabloids or seeing it like, you know, on those magazines as you're checking out at the grocery store. Um, but I don't really remember my family, like talking about the case or talking about what happened to her. Um, I don't know if like culturally, it just wasn't something that was like, we were shocked by, or we were scared about, but I do remember it being a big case. Yeah. It's funny that you say that. Cause my family either, I, I wouldn't call them like big true crime fans, but they did talk about this case a lot. And I do remember them specifically telling me because I had blonde hair and I had green eyes just like her. And I remember my parents being like, you see, you have to be really careful. I mean, this is the number one like incident where a kid will go missing. Like she's blonde hair, blue eyes, little white girl. Like that's what gets kidnapped in America and you need to be careful. And I remember like having this fear and then when you'd watch the news, you'd be like, that is all they talk about, you know? And like, obviously we know now it's like a way, there's a way bigger issue out there. There's a huge demographic that's not being covered, but when you're eight and that is all you're seeing, like you just assume that's what's really going on in the world. Yeah. It's unfortunate that other demographics and people of color are not covered in the media when things like this happen. But even then stuff like this was happening. It just was not being covered. It wasn't something that, you know, I guess was in the media limelight and it's sad. It's, it's kind of still that way to this day. So it's, it's still a huge problem today. I mean, I think we're just starting to really have the conversations about the problem. And I actually remember so morbid one time, you know, the podcast morbid. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So one time they had said, if there was like any case in the world that you could just like know all the answers to and like find out what really happened, what would it be? And I actually remember this was the first case that popped into my head. And then I felt really guilty about it. Like, like, I want to know about this, this one little white girl who died in her house. And you know what I mean? There's like so many cases you could potentially solve, but yeah, this one, I think it was all the news coverage and everything. It just really stuck with me. That's understandable too. And then too, I mean, it's still something that's relatable to you, regardless of how the media may have covered other cases, that was something that stuck with you. So, I mean, that's, that's understandable. Yeah. So I guess on that note, should we just jump in? Do you want to hear more, Kristen? I do. I'm excited. Okay. So John Bernay Ramsey was the American child beauty queen. So she would really become the icon for the death of innocence. She came from very affluent parents and John Bonnet was only six years old when she was murdered in her Boulder, Colorado residence on December 26, 1996. 
So that's the day after Christmas, which, you know, just is always going to bring like an extra level of, you know, tragedy to it. No one was ever charged for the JonBenet murder and the investigation still remains open two decades after her death. That this is one of like the big, almost controversial things because her family really wants it to be set to a cold case so it can go to new investigators. Um, but yeah, it's still an active open case. It probably could or wouldn't hurt uh, having a fresh set of eyes look over, you know, all the data that they have. Um, because I think that that is really how things get solved, especially if whoever is on the case and working it, if, if it's been this long, maybe, maybe someone else should look at it. Somebody should, else should definitely look at it. Cause, um, so I'll go into it. I mean, it, it feels like everybody messed this case up, to be honest. I mean, everyone, the cops, the DA, the parents, the parents, lawyers, like everybody messed this case up. And that's why it's like, still to this day, it's not solved. And there's so many theories on it and more so than any case that I've ever researched. This one was really hard because you know, every book you'd read, every article you'd read, like it's all so one-sided, like people truly, truly believe the parents did it or they don't like, it's very, you know, it's for, like, I heard it so many times so far, like for sure, Patsy Ramsey did it. And uh, so I, I guess I'll ask you, Kristen, the question that I've been asking everybody, who do you think did it? Do you think the parents did it? Or do you think it was somebody outside of the house? I'm going to guess that I think it was someone outside of the house. And again, I don't know all the details, but that is just what I'm going to go with off of just, you know, not knowing very much and not having any details. Going with the intruder theory. So honestly, I said, like, I've been asking everybody, like, I don't even have to really know you to ask you in the last couple of weeks who you think did it. And it's very, it's 50, 50, like 50, I swear it was almost when I did the math, it was, I had asked, well, let me look at it. So I had asked, I asked 61 people and in the end, the math equated to about 49% thought that it was somebody inside of the house. And honestly, like it was about 51% said uh, it, that it could have been someone else. It's very, very split. I wonder after like you cover everything and give all the details, will I change my mind? What do you think? Oh, I have no idea. I had so many issues with this case. And, and again, it's hard because you'll, you'll like read one book and you're for sure the parents did it. It's so obvious. It's the most obvious answer. And then, you know, you'll, you'll look at like Lou Smith. I'll go into him. He's the one who really introduced the intruder theory. And you look at all his evidence and it's like, you're looking at the same evidence, but each person has such a different argument and it all makes sense. Each argument makes sense. So it makes it really difficult. And this is one of the rare cases where I see actual experts in the area, like just fully, like you'll have two experts that are well-respected arguing completely different sides, uh, that, you know, normally they'd see eye to eye on things. So it's, it's just a, a strange case because of that, I think. And both of these experts arguments make sense are logical, um, explanations or, you know, I guess scenarios of how she could have been murdered. Yes. And I'm not even saying like, this isn't like, well, okay, of course the defense, you know, the defense hired somebody and the prosecution. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about like, you know, 
like two people working for the defense kind of thing, or I mean, for the prosecution that are coming up with the two polar opposite theories. And this isn't just one thing or the whole case. I'm talking about like when you get into the details of like the DNA or, you know, we'll go into all of the, the evidence, but again, it, I just think it's weird that you, you, on the same side of things, you have people arguing very different, different conclusions to what happened. Interesting. Mm. Well, tell me more. I'm ready. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I, it's going to be hard for me to like talk down Patsy Ramsey, because I just think she's this big character. Like, honestly, I, I tried it. That's one of the things that I found hard with the case too, is like, I kind of just fell in love with the Ramseys. Like Patsy's really like this sassy Southern woman. And she actually uh, yelled at a journalist because well, she was getting interviewed and they kept calling her Jean Bonnet and like really putting this like French accent on it. And she's like, it ain't Jean Bonnet. It's John Bonnet because her name is actually from her dad, uh, who's John Bennett. And then her mom is Patricia. So they, and they call her Patsy. So they named her John Bonnet, Patricia Ramsey. And she was born in August 6, 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. And she also was just described as an outgoing Southern girl. And from day one, she loved to be the center of attention. It's a good role for her. They moved to Boulder, Colorado when she was pretty young. And by the age of four, she was already performing in pageants. And one thing that people, they don't seem to really talk about is because a lot of people argue that four is just way too young to put kids into pageants. But at the time, Patsy was actually diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And I, I think she really thought like, if I want to see my daughter perform and I want to see her in pageants, like I, I don't have the luxury of waiting until she's eight. Like I need to get her into this now. And Patsy was in Patsy and her sister were both Miss West Virginia. So it's like kind of in the family. So it makes sense to me why Patsy and Patsy's mom. So John Bonnet's grandma, they want to put her in these pageants and they want to see her perform. So Kristen, what do you, what do you think about pageants? I know Texas is usually pretty big on pageants. Do you have any insider knowledge for us? I don't have any insider knowledge. I don't also have daughters, you know, but if I did, would, would I put my daughters in pageants at the ripe age of four? Probably not. I mean, I don't, I'm not the, the type of person that's going to judge someone for what they do with their children or whatnot, but I personally would not do it in the, in the sense from like the pictures or photos that I have seen of JonBenet when she was in pageants and things like that. I just felt like it was too much, but that's a matter of my personal opinion. I, so I, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, especially when you're like constantly being shown these photos, it's, it feels like a lot, but, um, I don't, I don't know anybody who's personally done pageants. I used to work with a girl though. Uh, we didn't work closely together. She was in a different department, but she had did pageants and I'm telling like, I would never want to interview against her. Like she always <laughs> just, you know what I mean? Like she had these like foundational, uh, like behaviors, like she, the way she walked and presented herself and the way she talked like softball did not teach me these things. <laughs> like she was, it sounds like she was just very polished and she learned those skills from being in pageants. It prepared yeah. her for interviewing and 
just showed her how to be presentable and, and very polished, it sounds. Very polished and, you know, great in a crisis situation. You know, she can handle herself and she was probably freaking out. But on the inside, like, you know, on the inside she was, but on the outside, she just looked like, and we're going to get this done. <laughs> and, um, so I was always really impressed with her. I mean, that's my only example. There's probably a lot of horrible examples out there too. But um, I, I don't know. I also had a lot of cousins that danced and they all started at like the age of three and they, you know, wore similar costumes and like, I don't know, it, it seemed very normal to me. So, but this is, I'm probably going to get a lot of heat for this. So please don't come after me. I'm sure I'm going to get like a bunch of inboxes now telling me like how horrible pageants are and like how I'm bringing women back years. So sorry guys. <laughs> don't give us the heat guys. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm, I'm open. Tell me, tell me what you think. I'm totally open. Definitely not an expert in this. And I also don't have a girl. Thank God. So <laughs> moving on. And so John Bonet, she has an older brother, Burke, and who, who lives with her. So she has a few other half siblings as well, but Burke actually lives with her. That's her like full brother. They have the same parents. And so he's nine when she's found and Burke's an interesting character. I think it seems to be that there is sort of a lot of resentment from him. I mean, I think you can understand this. Like this was what Patsy did. She was in pageants and now her daughter's excelling in pageants. I mean, she's killing it. It almost seems like she's made for performing and Burke's just kind of left in the shadows. He's sometimes described as just being sort of awkward and, um, you know, he's in sports and stuff, but I mean, it's definitely, he's not, he's not in pageants, you know, he doesn't want to dress up and wear makeup with his mom. So uh, I think it was hard for him. Also, it's known that Patsy loved to like dress her daughter up as like her little twin. So I think it, you know, it probably just kind of hurt Burke seeing that. And um, at the time it's, you know, her, his dad is really working hard to build up his business and make it into a huge success. So he's not around very much. So I think it's probably, probably just hard for Burke and he's probably just a little annoyed. But from all other accounts, from close family and friends, him and his sister were very close. They would roughhouse a lot, but for the most part, um, you know, that's how brothers and sisters are. So you say that, and when I think of the bond that it sounds like Patsy had with John Bonet, it it I mean, were there any highlights into Patsy's relationship with Burke and what type of mother she was to him? Was he in the shadows? Like, was he kind of you know? he wasn't her primary focus. You, you know, they don't, honestly, they don't dig into it too much. I mean, I, I think that she took these pageants very seriously. Like she tries to downplay it after the murder and say, you know, things along the lines of like, this was just a Sunday activity, but we know she was in dance lessons and acting lessons. And like, you know, I, I think it took a lot of work for all the things John Bonet was in. But I mean, on the same side, Burke was in a lot. I mean, he was in baseball. He was in basketball. I, th I mean, I think he was in a few sports. You know how it is. It's not, it's not easy when you have kids in a lot of activities. So, I mean, I think she did her best and I think she truly loved her son. I think she just had this like very, very special bond with John Bonet. What did Patsy work? So Patsy did not work. She was a stay at home mom. And then she did a lot of work with the, with the schools and she did a lot of charity work. So she did go to school. She got her degree in, in journalism. And I think she like minored in PR. So she, she did work in that field for a little bit and she was doing that, but yeah, eventually when she had her kids, she um, just started to stay home and do all these, these extra activities. Okay. All right. That's something I'm going to, I guess, 
hold in the back of my mind on how I feel about who would have committed this crime. Yep. Okay. And, and then they, they do a lot of media appearances. So I think it's, it's an important thing to remember as well when you're looking at the family. At this point, John Ramsey, like I said, he's building up his business. When he met Patsy, he had just started this business and he was making like 18,000 a year. I mean, he wasn't making much at all, but at this point he's a multimillionaire businessman. I mean, his company's doing well. It's merged with a couple extra companies. It's the nineties. It's a computer company. I mean, you know how some of these, these were really taking off at the time. So I, I mean, I think he got lucky there. So basically they're, they're the perfect family, you know, it, it, from all appearances, they really are the perfect family and they're living in this gigantic house. Kristen, do you, by chance, do you remember like the shots of the house where they would always, there was always these shots of the, the front of the house. And it had like candy canes going up the lane and there was yellow caution tape around it. I do remember that it was a massive, ridiculously uh, house that they lived in. And that it was decorated for Christmas. Yeah. So, so it is a massive house. I just didn't realize how big it was. So it's 7,000 square feet and it has over 104 windows and nine doors going to the outside. Okay. So it's like four houses. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, so to just kind of picture the layout really quick, there's a huge bat, uh, there, sorry, there's a huge basement. It's like a maze down there. Then we have the main floor with like, you know, the kitchen, the dining room, all that probably study and some stuff like that. Then you have another floor and on this floor you have some more bedrooms. So you have John Bonet's bedroom, which has a full, full size bathroom. It's huge. It's way bigger than mine. And, and this is their six-year-old daughter's. And then she has a full balcony, like this huge, gorgeous balcony, like right off, not like it is, it's right off her bedroom. Ooh. So yeah, she's really, she's living life. Okay. She's, she's living in the lap of luxury in Boulder, Colorado. And you mentioned the Christmas decoration. So Christmas is huge to this family. I mean, they go all out. And this year was no exception. This was like one of the busiest years ever. They're really celebrating. And so to understand the decoration situation, Patsy hires a staff and they decorate for four days straight. Every single room in this giant house has a, has a Christmas tree. It's got ribbon and bows everywhere. It's like every inch of this house has like the Christmas spirit thrown up on it. It sounds like Patsy is big on like presentation and not just from, you know, her clothes or how she looks or how her daughter looks or even how her son looks, but it's like a whole shebang. It's, you know, my house has to be let, like decorated to the, to the nines, you know, it's funny. It's like, you already know the story. I mean, it's, to her, it was so important and just the appearance and she would actually put the house up for, do you know, like how they do like the historical tours? This is like something yeah. rich people do. So yeah, they, so she does the historical tour. So right before Christmas, she has a historical tour so that 
they say around a hundred people are walking through her house. It's actually for charity, but you pay to get to like walk through this giant house. And she loved it. I mean, she ate this up. I mean, getting the opportunity to show her house to all her friends and neighbors and, and just really get to show off. I mean, she loved it. And also days before uh, this would occur, you know, this incident and Christmas, she would hold, and every year she would do this, she would hold this huge Christmas party for all the kids, all the friends and um, everybody to come over. And they went every year they would hire a Santa. Um, so we'll talk about Santa Bill later. He, he ends up becoming a suspect, but I mean, just so you understand what kind of party this is, like they're hiring Santas and they're really going all out. So around this time, John's company also hits a billion in sales. So obviously this is huge. And his PR girls telling him like, we need to throw a party. We need to celebrate this and we need to do some press releases. So he ends up in the news. Obviously they're, they're trying to get his name out there. They're trying to celebrate the company as being worth a billion dollars. And at this point, John Bonet is, you know, this is her time to shine too. So she's in a pageant. She's performing at her school. So she performed for everybody. And this isn't like just their school pageant. I mean, she's up there doing a solo by herself in front of the whole school. And then just days before her murder, she's performing at a mall. So she's, again, she's six years old and she's on stage by herself, just, you know, singing her little lungs out and performing in front of all of these strangers. And this is a packed mall. I mean, think about it. It's right before Christmas. And this is the nineties. Like this is wall-to-wall -wall people. So she, this isn't just pageants. She's like an entertainer almost. It sounds like She's booking malls to, to uh, dance or like, you know, show her her thing. And then even at the school, like this is not just beauty pageants. This is her wanting to kind of be on stage or, you know what I'm saying? It's, it sounds like maybe it wasn't just her mom, you know, wanting to put her in all this stuff. It sounds like, she, you know, John Bonet may have been passionate about wanting to do this and kind of be in the limelight. because. You know, little kids, you know, they do want to shine, right? They, not all of them, but for those that do, you do want to kind of flourish that, that desire, you know, if your kid's like really, really good at something, you're like, well, let's push them. Let's keep pushing them to that. They're drawn to that. Let's, you know, let's throw them that way. You know, let's, let's, let's foster this talent. Like, yes. Yeah. And I, I do like from all accounts from people around her, I think she really enjoyed this. I mean, yeah, there was probably sometimes she didn't want to do it. She was tired, but I think like, you know, that's usually a parent's job is to kind of push them, you know, a little, not go overboard, but push them a little. And she seemed to love this. She seemed to perform. So her parents were looking for these opportunities for her. I mean, I think this was great for her. She also, I forgot to mention, she was in a parade for one of the pageants she had won. So, I mean, she, they, her name was really getting out there and I think she was enjoying it. And I do think her parents were enjoying it. One of the things John said, you know, her father was that she did love it. Like he hates that they made it sound like Patsy was just this crazy stage mom pushing her. And he told her once, cause she was kind of thinking like, you know, what should I really focus on? What should I work in these pageants? And he said, you know, you can't really control how you look really, you know, you, you, you might not be the most beautiful girl there someday, but he said, you can really work on your talent. Like you can actually put work in onto your performance and you know, that's where you can succeed. That's, that's where you can kind of control 
some of that. So like, he was like, almost in my opinion, that's what you should do. And so he has this story where one time he showed up late to a pageant and she was so excited to show him. And she like puts the medal around his neck. Cause she had won the award for like best talent, best singer or whatever it was. So, I mean, she was really proud of it. And she, I think again, that's like at six to, to even be asking those questions, you know, shows she was this, you know, like old spirit. Yeah. But then too, what I'm also seeing is that like her parents were proud of her. They, it's, it sounds like, you know, they really genuinely, genuinely loved her. Yeah. I mean, it, it could all be an act. It totally could. But when I, when I hear them talk about their daughter, I think, you know, even if they did kill her, they, they really loved their daughter, that this was some sort of accident. I don't think this was, you know, like some long drawn out plan on how to kill their daughter. I don't know if that's a good segue into Christmas morning, but let's jump into it. So it's Christmas morning, John Benet and Burke wake up, you know, they're just like any other kids. They're really excited. They want to run downstairs, see what Santa got them, open all their presents. They have pancakes for breakfast. Again, it's just always a dream life with them. And they're, you know, they're enjoying their Christmas and they're going to head over to the White's family, this is like their best friends and they're going to have Christmas dinner. So they get ready. They go over there. They have a great time. They're, they're over there for, you know, several hours, probably around six. They have a big meal. They're celebrating. And it's such a good time that John Bonet passes out in the car on the way home. And they say that, you know, when they got home, she didn't even wake up. They just carried her upstairs and put her to bed. Burke's still up for a while. He's playing with his new toys, but then they say, everybody's got to go to bed because they're going to get up early in the morning. They're going to fly to Michigan and see John's other kids. So they're going to celebrate Christmas with his family. And then they're actually flying from there to go on a Disney cruise. So everybody, you know, it's a, it's a big vacation coming up. Everybody's got to go to bed at 10 30. They all go to sleep and John actually took some melatonin. So Patsy wakes up early around 5.30 the next morning to get ready. And she jumps in the shower. She gets out, you know, she does her hair, she does her makeup. And then she throws on her clothes that she wore the day before at the party all day. Um, so she puts those clothes back on and then she goes downstairs. And when she gets down there, she notices that on the stairs, there's three, three notes. Like there's three pages laid out on the stairs and she so she's looking at him and she reads the first couple of sentences and she realizes that somebody's kidnapped her daughter asking for $118,000 in ransom money. Hmm. Yeah, so Patsy freaks out right away she runs up and she checks on John Bonet. And at this point, you know, she doesn't see John Bonet, she's yelling, she's running through all the rooms, she's alerting John and since they can't find JonBenet, uh, Patsy calls 911. On this call, she's frantic. I mean, she's frantically asking for the police. She's um, panic breathing. She's she at one point she hangs up the phone. It, it's really, it's it, it, you know, it's it's just sort of like a hysterical moment. It seems like she doesn't maybe get that much information out. She's just all over the place, but she's begging for the cops to come. So she hangs up the phone and right after that, she calls some friends to come over for emotional support. 
when the cops show up around six, this is seven minutes after they called. So this is quick. The cops are taking it seriously. The house is already starting to fill with people. Another huge mistake is the cops show up in just normal cop cars. And so one thing with that is if you finish reading the ransom note, it says, do not call the cops. And then typically that's like what all ransom notes say. So in a ransom situation, I guess it's just standard protocol or in kidnappings that it's not, it's supposed to be an unmarked car that shows up. So it's already messed up. I mean, the cops aren't kicking everyone out. There's all these people there and they search the house, but they only tape off John Bonet's room. So they only make John Bonet's room, the crime scene, and they're just treating it like a kidnapping. And so the rest of the house just has people roaming all through it. Another thing that really like kind of piques the cop's interest is that the ransom note says that they would call between eight and 10 o'clock the next morning to arrange the drop. So that time passes and it seems that there's really no questions from the parents. And so the cops are really suspicious. Like they're like, wouldn't you be freaking out at 10 o'clock? Or like literally standing by the phone waiting for it to ring. Exactly. So I think what this is again, where some of the accounts sort of change because when I first looked at it, like when they were first there, they were first documenting what was going on. They were saying that Patsy was sitting right there nervously sort of staring at the phone. I think I would, honestly, I would be questioning like, oh my God, should I be concerned? But also if you think about it, I think in my head, I would be like, well, did they mean this morning or did they mean tomorrow morning? Because it says tomorrow and you don't know if that was written, you know, before midnight or after midnight. I, I don't have $118,000 in my bank account that I could just go take out of the bank. But I, can you, can you walk into like Chase and say like, I'll take $118,000 in twenties, please. I've never been in a ransom situation. I would not be able to answer that question, but my guess would be no. I mean, if, if, if they had the money, if they had, you know, the cash on hand in the bank. Sure. I mean, it's your money. I would think you could with make a withdrawal or under these circumstances with the police, you know, this being known that it's a ransom situation or a kidnapping situation. But if I'm the parents, I don't care if the letter was written the night before the morning of I'm going to be by that phone or I'm going to be searching frantically for my child. Those are the one of the two things that I'm going to be. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's weird that they weren't questioning at all or, you know, if, if that's the truth. I mean, that's the cops accounts now. It's, it is, it's just hard to say. The ransom note is so weird. It's so long and it's so weird. And um, I think it's- And the amount too, the amount and the like three page uh, ransom letter. Yeah, we'll get into the ransom letter. We'll get into the amount and everything, but- basically, I don't think there's one part of that ransom note. That's not weird. I'm not going to read it, but there's so many people that read it and they just go line for line. And they've had all these experts, you know, going over this and it's like every line, there's something sort of strange about it, but we'll get into that. Don't worry. So at this point, the cops have called in the FBI. They say like, Hey, this is a kidnapping. We're going to need your help. You know, you need to get here. And so all the cops leave and that's what they say. They're going to go meet 
with the FBI. All the cops leave except for one. They leave Linda aren't there alone. So she's a detective. She's there all by herself. It's not just the Ramseys. It's the Ramseys. It's the friends. At this point, their father showed up, you know, to be there for spiritual, you know, help and things like that. And it's, it's almost like a free for all. They've called so many people and she knows she's losing control of this crime scene. And so she's messaging back to the other cops saying like, please, somebody come here. And she actually reaches out twice and nobody responds, but she knows she needs help. And, you know, again, this is the day after Christmas. So I think they're definitely limited. There's a very limited staff. The one person who's not even an expert, but like the one person that's attended an FBI training on kidnapping is out of the state on vacation. And then they're not used to dealing with kidnaps or murders or things like that. There was zero murders in 96 in Boulder told JonBenet Ramsey. So, you know, it's not like being in Chicago where you, you have a few uh, homicide detectives that are really experienced, or, you know, you have somebody who's used to dealing with kidnapping. So there, there was really no one with experience on scene at all. Well, it's no, exactly. I mean, the only one on scene right now is literally Linda aren't like, could you imagine being alone in that situation and trying to like control these people? And it's the worst day of their life. Like no matter what, like, whether they did it or someone else did it, no matter what, it's the worst day of their life. So, yeah, but it still sounds like a shit show. And I, I, I couldn't imagine being Linda and trying to like get some control, but I also don't understand why. Well, I don't know. In a situation like that, you're wanting support. I, I do understand that, but to have them physically come there you have to at some point think to yourself, this is still a crime scene. Someone came in here and took my child. So I, I don't know, but I, that's just the way that I think. And it's probably from watching so much true crime, but I don't know. In 96, I, I, I feel like that's, that's when things really started getting weird. And like, I don't know. It was just more, more in the forefront of people doing things like this and, you know, right. Like, do you feel like that that's when it seemed to be more common too? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, historically, if you look, that's when they suddenly have all these 24 hour news stations that are just running, like they need to fill it with something. So we got some of our really big cases around this time. And also when this had happened, I mean, besides the fact that let's be realist, it's like, you know, it's Christmas. It's this little beauty pageant girl. It's also right around the time that the OJ Simpson case has ended. So they had all this great, like, you know, stuff that they were airing 24 seven around him. And now that's over. What, what do you do? You know? And then they get this case. Yeah. I'm sure the media, I mean, those people probably went eight shit crazy like yes we have something we have something to report on yeah and they had a lot to report on to be honest so i don't i don't know for me like my friends are such a support group if i was in this horrible situation like i could totally see me calling my friends or or my brothers or somebody over and i think if the cops didn't kick them out i would just sort of assume like oh, i don't need to kick them out uh i I don't know. Maybe you'd wait till the cops got there before you called your friends. I, I don't know what I would do in this situation. 
I agree. I agree with you there. Um, they, they wouldn't have been the immediate call right after the, the call to the cops. It would have probably been a few hours or I don't know, like. She didn't even stay on the phone with the cops. Like, <laughs> and we're being honest, like she hung up the phone with the 911 operator and then called her friend. So it, it, it's again, it's just, there's it, everybody's got, everybody acts weird in this case. I swear. So the, the friends are really surrounding Patsy. I mean, she's devastated. She, like she's just barely functional and they're all trying to help her and they're, they're doing things like cleaning up the kitchen. I mean, they're wiping off the counters. Um, you know, there's a, we'll talk about it. There's a bowl of pineapple sitting there. They, they threw the pineapple away. They washed the bowl, like all this stuff. And they're, the cops aren't telling them to stop. And they're, again, they're just not treating it at all like a, a crime scene. And at one point, John goes missing for like an hour. Linda has no clue where he's at. She's getting really worried. She later, like she says, she thought he was like out getting the mail or something, but she has no idea where he is. He claims he was just sitting in his study and that he was going through his mail because like that he didn't need to leave the house to get it, that, you know, there's a slot right in the door, but he was going through all his mail because he was hoping maybe there was some other correspondence there or something. But Linda's like she's no clue where he was, but she says when he comes back, his entire demeanor has changed. So he's like clearly visibly more upset. And like in her head, she thinks something has just happened. Like something has changed. I also think like, if you're not a very emotional person and maybe you didn't come across as being very emotional when they first got there, like maybe he did go upstairs to his study for a little bit and was like losing his mind and was really upset and he came back and he couldn't hide it anymore. What do you think? I mean, I think that that's a logical theory because some people are private and don't feel comfortable showing emotion. I I could see that John being older, right? Cause I don't, I don't remember how old you said he was when this happened, but I could see that an older man not wanting to show emotion regardless of the situation like yes he's probably frantic and panic and all that but to show it and allow other people to see it i could see him like withholding that or holding that back so i'm i'm jumping ahead but since you said it you like gave me a good segue so john actually had another daughter die before this um, no, you're looking at me, but he had nothing to do with it. It wasn't a car accident. So she was, I believe 21. It was actually here in Illinois, but she got into a car accident and she died and he wasn't there. He got this, he got a, a call from his brother to say, you know, your, your daughter died. And he was like sobbing. Like everybody said that he was really emotional and he was really angry and he was like showing a lot of emotion. So like people point to that of like, well, he, he didn't seem to be that way exactly right away with Jean Benet, but he describes us that, you know, he was really upset when his, you know, his first daughter died, there was nothing he could do. She was already dead. She, he couldn't like call in the best surgeon or, you know, there was nothing he could do. And he said that at this point with Jean Benet, he, he felt like there was still something they could do like, and didn't feel like they were doing it. Like he, you know, he wanted them to do more, but they weren't they weren't doing it. He felt like he, they, they left him there with one cop. I mean, would you feel like a priority? I mean, so then to just thinking back to trauma, right. And when 
something happens. So he loses his daughter when she's 21 and he's devastated and it's visible and it's, you know, he, he knows what that pain is. Right. And now it's years later and his daughter, he doesn't know if she's gone or we don't know that he knows that she's gone, but he, I mean, he remembers probably what that first trauma was like. And that's hard to kind of come to, come to grips with or come to terms with. I have seen that in, you know, just personal experiences of someone experiencing trauma at one point and trauma later and having completely different reactions. I have, I have experienced that. So, but again, it all still, I think, boils down to, you never know how someone is going to react when something happens. Like just, you think you know, but until you actually experience something like that, I feel like you have no idea how you're going to react, how you're going to respond, you know? Right. And one of the other things that the cops always note is that Patsy and John weren't really consoling each other, which I guess in these situations is what you normally see. I feel like if I was in this situation, I would want my partner right next to me, but she had all her friends around him and around her. And I think that if he just knows he's, you know, kind of shutting down emotionally and he can't be there for Patsy, he might just be like, but she has her friends and, and she's, she's going to be okay. I, I, I don't know. What's your opinion on them not consoling each other? So it could depend on what was going on in their relationship at this time when this happened. Was their anger, were they fighting about something the night before at the Christmas party that they went to at the White family house? Um, was, you know, did they have an argument before they went to bed? Um, were there money issues? Was there infidelity? Like there's so many things that come into play. And then too, you know, I don't know. I mean, did Patsy think like, well, why does, why, why would someone want to take our daughter? Was she like resenting him about something? Was she feeling resentment? Was he resenting her for something? Like maybe, hmm, you've got our daughter in this pageant. You've exposed her to all these people. And was he angry about that? Was that why he wasn't consoling her? I feel like that could go a lot of different directions. Yeah. And at this point, Linda's, she's trying to keep him busy. Like she can tell that he's like very agitated and, and I don't know what made her say this or what made her do this, but she decides to tell him to take his friend fleet. That's his best friend. You know, they were just at Christmas with, and she tells him like, start at the top and like search every room, search everything and go all the way down to the basement. And I just want you to see if there's anything out of place. Do you notice anything missing anything along those lines? So right away, she's frustrated because he says, okay. And he heads right for the basement. So she always, she always points this out of how suspicious this was, but in his mind, he says the entry point would like, it would most likely be the basement or a ground floor. It's not going to be the top floor. And actually, I'm sorry, I discussed the whole layout of the house and I forgot to mention that on top of this house, it's actually four levels because, you know, I mentioned where Burke and JonBenet are, but they're the Ramseys, uh, their bedroom is above theirs, their bedroom. And it's like the whole floor. So imagine like a giant attic bedroom, like not an attic though. It's really nice. 
Um, so there, they were all the way up there. The cops like were barely even in that room at that point. Wait. So when the cops got there initially, like when, after the call was made and they arrived to the scene, they didn't search the entire house top to bottom themselves. So they said they like searched the entire house, but they really focused also on entry points and they assume like the entry point's not going to be the fourth floor. And they really were operating under the assumption that it was a kidnapping. So they really focused on the basement, which we'll get into in a couple minutes, why that's weird. And then they really focused on like those main level floors where they assume an entry point could happen. And then John Bonet's room, obviously, because she's the one who went missing. But other than that, yeah, they'd barely been in, in the bedroom or anything like that. That sounds like crap police work. You know, if I mean, that's terrible. Subpar police work, honestly. Like, it's it's hard to not criticize the police in this. John and his friend Fleet are heading down to the basement. Right away, they notice this broken window that John admits he had broken about a month before because he was notorious for forgetting his keys or losing his keys. So this window, there's like a crate covering it. So you know how like it's a basement. So it's like actually underground. The window is. So this one, there's like a crate over it and you can like jump down into it and then you can jump into the window. So they notice this, that window is open and they notice that there's luggage. There's like a suitcase right underneath that window. So I think that's odd, obviously. Then there's like a closet right off of that room. So they're checking the closet. They don't see anything there. And then they go into this other room. It's like this wine cellar room. It's not actually being used as a wine cellar, but it's a wine cellar. So John opens the door and he sees this white blanket and realizes that his daughter's wrapped on this white blanket on the floor. And so at around 105, he just screams. You can hear it throughout the house. There's this like bloody murder scream and he sees his daughter with her hands tied together above her head and he's trying to untie them and he can't get them apart. And then he sees that there's duct tape covering her mouth. So he rips the duct tape off and he's trying to, you know, see if she's alive. He says that his first thought was he was so relieved he had found his daughter and then he had that horrible realization that he was pretty sure his daughter was dead. So he picks her up and he runs her upstairs and he's yelling and he puts her down on the floor and he's yelling at Linda. Is she dead? Is she dead? Like he's like, like help her. Like he's, you know, he's frantic, like help her. It's obvious to him. She's very cold, you know, but he just wants to help his daughter. And Linda looks at him and says, yes, she, she, you know, she feels for the pulse and she says, yes, she's dead. But then Linda decides that he's put her in a very trafficked area. So it's like a pathway. So she decides to move John Bonet again and she moves her right next to the Christmas tree, which is just, that's like a very, very morbid sight. So John sees that now his dead daughter is laying in front of the Christmas tree. And he says, we can't let Patsy see her like this. And so he covers her with a blanket. That's just like sitting there. And this is, and, and Linda lets him do this. And then 
like some, like then she actually grabs uh, like a hoodie, like a sweatshirt and covers her feet. It goes on, it's, it gets worse. So then they let Patsy come in. So Patsy comes in and she sees her daughter, her precious daughter laying there by the Christmas tree. And she says, nothing felt real. She knelt down over her and she laid her cheek on John Bonnie's cheek and she was just bawling. So their father comes in and he's standing like next to her and he starts trying to read the last rites for the little girl. And Patsy just starts yelling. She's telling him, no, no, you have to ask Jesus to raise my daughter as he did Lazarus. Ask God to raise her, please. She's just begging, like bring my daughter back. Are they a religious family? Yeah, they are a very religious family. She couldn't handle the thought. Like, you know, if, if once they're reading the last, right, that's the last rites, like that's it kind of thing. I felt, I think she felt like, no, you have to try. Like you have to pray. Like we have to somehow bring her back to life. But obviously there's no bringing her back to life. So the Ramses were there for about another hour before, you know, the cops have them leave the house. They've never returned to that house since. They had people just pack the house up. They sold it. They could not go back to the house. I don't think I could go back to the house either, but I don't understand something. Okay. What don't you understand? Probably a lot. <laughs> I'm, being honest. I'm like, I'm like, this is really, really messed up. I did not know all these details. So they covered her up, right? With this blanket and the sweatshirt, but Patsy was going to see her either way. So if she, if you know, it's like brace for impact, but it's like, you're going to cover her and contaminate even more evidence. And granted, I know Linda was part of that too, but still it's like, okay, let me brace your impact right now before you come in this room and see what you're about to see. But to cover her, I think that's worse. I think it's a worse, I don't know. That's just a matter of opinion, but I feel like that would be a even worse image to see because you come in a room and you see a body that is obviously a child's body laying on the floor or whatever she may have been laying on and it's covered you, you know you already now know I don't know I don't know I feel like that's strange you know we can't let Patsy see her like this but she's gone she's gone but they, I mean we'll get it like let me slow down you have to understand where the like the state of the body as well because I mean her hands are tied up like you don't want to, okay. you don't want to see your daughter bound. And then there's ligature marks all over her neck. Oh yeah. You didn't tell me that part. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So you, yeah, I, I, so I do think like, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to see that. So, uh, I think yes, it's horrible. Like he shouldn't have picked up the body. Everybody always talks about that. Like he shouldn't have, he should have known not to pick up the body. It's your daughter. It's your child. Yeah, no. I mm -hmm. would have been far more suspicious if he was like, no, nobody touched the body. Like, yeah. So I don't, I don't find that strange. I think that his reaction to cover the body is a natural reaction. I think it was Linda's job to prevent that from happening. And I, I don't mean to keep ragging on the cops, but Linda, like, I'm just going to say it. Linda pissed me off in this case. We have another case of a Linda pissing me off, but 
you know, Linda always like, she really like, she really criticizes John for this, all of these actions. And in my opinion, I'm like, if John's a grieving father, like he did his part, he found his daughter, you know, he, he did what he could to comfort her as, you know, as best he could, you know, he, he, you know what I mean? If he was the murderer, he also did his job and contaminated the scene and you let him. So like in my head, John, either way did his job. The only person on that scene who didn't do her job was Linda. Yeah, that is a very strong point. Very strong point. And again, to point out, this isn't Linda's area of expertise. I, I would, I would think that's kind of 101 though. She should know that, but she did go into public. She went on news stations and she really bashed the Ramses and she said all this stuff. And again, I just think, Hey, you, you got to look at your yourself and what did you do wrong before you instantly go blaming, um, before you go blaming John and his, and his family. And she even, so she goes into, she goes on some news program. I'm sorry. I don't remember who it was. It was like, a, it wasn't like a local program. It was a big national news thing. And she was saying that when this occurred, that she actually like counted how many bullets she had in her in her gun, because she said she saw something in John's eyes and she knew at that very moment that he had killed his daughter and that she didn't think they were all going to get out of there alive that day. Are you serious? Yeah. So it's like, now the cops try to go back and say like, well, we didn't think they were guilty right away. Like we were looking at all the evidence, but it's like, no, Linda's made it clear. She was the only one on site. She's made it clear. She knew who did it. Like she, thought the Ramses did it. She thought all of these actions were weird, but she wasn't stopping it. But the cops are, they're finally taking it a little more seriously. I guess you can say they're going to actually come. They're going to kick everybody out. They're going to treat it like a crime scene. They, again, they immediately think the Ramses are guilty and the Ramses are being told that they have like front. I mean, they have big, powerful friends. They're loaded. Let's be real. They have people like friends at the DA's office, they're getting insider information saying, I would get a lawyer if I were you. Like they're not looking at anyone else. They're, they know it was you. They think it was you get a lawyer. So what do the Ramses do within 48 hours? They get a lawyer. So they have talked to the cops now, I think like one time and they've already lawyered up. But I mean, the cops should have separated them immediately when their daughters went, when their daughter went missing and they should have been interviewing them separately. They, they didn't do any of that. And of course, once they lawyered up, the lawyers are, they, they know the Ramses are the number one suspect. No criminal defense attorney is going to have their clients sitting in a police station, getting interrogated when they know that they're, even if they think they're not guilty, they know the cops think that they are. Another thing that is, you know, very controversial is that, you know, shortly after that, they also go ahead and they hire some PR representatives. I, I get that. And I feel like no matter what a situ in a situation like this, it is in that person. And when I say that, I mean, like the parents, it, it was in their best interest to get legal representation right away. Don't you think? Absolutely. Like, and to be honest, again, we're not talking about poor people. And at this time, I think John had, they said they had around 6 million in assets. So in homes, they had planes, private planes and all this stuff. And, and then they had about 6 million in cash too. So, I mean, they were definitely worth a lot of money. And I think yeah, of course you're going to, you're going to grab a lawyer and the PR thing to me, 
this is what Patsy did. This is, you know what I mean? I think it's a little different too. When you're like you, and maybe she didn't do it in this particular situation, but when you're used to PR or you're used to this, like, I think it's just more in your head that, you know, like this isn't going well, I'm going to need a PR representative to help me handle all of this media. So let's jump into some of the actual evidence here. The first thing that I have to bring up is the ransom note because it just confuses everyone. It's just really weird. It's just like, even historically, it's a very strange ransom note. And everyone who thinks the parents did it always, this is like their number one piece of evidence that they point to. So it's actually the longest ransom note that was ever written in the U.S. And it's the only time that a ransom note was found and that a body was left behind. So the other strange thing is that Typically, if there's a ransom, they'll bring the note with them, but they were able to prove that this note actually came out of Patsy Ramsey's notebook and that her pen also came from it. So for sure it came from, you know, from in the house. But the other weird thing is that they found it put back right where it belongs. And then when they're looking through this notebook, they also realize that clearly somebody had done practice notes as well. So they find one note that says, dear Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. Then they decide not to move forward with that one. Then it appears that they practiced a, like a bunch of them, but ripped those pages out and nobody's ever found those ripped out pages and, or the other practice notes. And then, then they actually have this three page ransom letter. So it's two and a half pages. So another thing that I find that's sort of strange, maybe not that they, both parents say that they didn't touch the ransom note at all. They said that they just sort of, cause it, they were laid out. They said they just sort of lean over it. And then that like, that's how they read it. So John says he never touched it and they don't find his fingerprints. Patsy said she may have touched it. They end up finding her fingerprints on it. They don't find that. And then they find like the first cop that was on site. One of them, they find his fingerprints on it, but no one else's fingerprints on it. So he could have worn gloves, but I don't know. I, I think I would have been tempted just to pick it up. Uh, another thing that they point out is that in the 911 call, Patsy said that she didn't read. And she said she like, didn't read the ransom note, which I kind of believe. I think if I read the first, I would not sit there and read all three pages. Like if I read my daughter was missing in the first couple of lines, like I'm gone, I'm going to look for her. But in the 911 call, they ask her, who do you know who took your daughter? And she says, no. And then she pauses. And then she says, victory SBTC which is at the end of the ransom note. And so everybody points this out, like, well, how would she know that if she didn't read the ransom notes? And I'm like, it doesn't take a bachelor's degree in journalism to look at the end of a note. You know what I mean? And to me, it didn't sound like she was like saying that from memory. It looks like she paused and she actually looked at the note and read it. But um, no matter what, that's even a weird part of the ransom note. They didn't sign it or anything along those lines. It just says SB. TC, which still to this day, there's theories on what that means, but nobody's ever figured out what that stands for. So you could really, I've already said this several times, but you can tear each line in this ransom note apart, but I just want to highlight a couple other really weird things. So we already mentioned it's only addressed to Mr. Ramsey, even though in that practice one, they had addressed it to both. Then they say that they're a small foreign faction, which I mean, I, I just think 
typically like if you're, if you're a group of people, like you want to make yourself sound like the biggest foreign faction ever, right? Like you're not, especially when you're trying to like extort someone, you're not going to like downplay your size. You're going to be like, there's a lot of us and we all hate you, but they don't do that. And they also refer to themselves as foreign, which I didn't even think about, but like they say all these specialists say like, nobody actually refers to themselves as foreign. So it's that part's weird. But one of the things you'd already asked about was they, they think it's really weird that they asked for $118,000. I mean, this guy's like a millionaire and his daughter's missing. You could ask for a, like a hell of a lot more money than that. But the other thing that's really weird is that that's almost exactly the amount that John had gotten as a bonus that year. So like just that week, he'd re- basically received a check for just over $118,000. So a lot of people point that out. They think that like, you know, maybe Patsy just had that number in her head or that it had to have been somebody close with the family, somebody that knew the number. Um, With the intruder theory that we'll get into, if it was just some stranger kind of roaming the house, they say that, you know, maybe they found this paycheck stub or, or, you know, found the check stub or something along those lines. But again, it's just a very weird number to have chosen. They also misspell some like pretty common words like business, but then they use words like attache. So do you know what attache means? No. So I didn't know what attache means. I actually asked my boss because my boss has like the biggest vocabulary out of anyone (laughs) I know. And I was like, if if anybody's walking around saying attache, it would be my boss. And we had to like look up the word together because he did not know it. But (laughs) um, so Basically they tell, they say, John, you know, make sure when you show up to the bank to get all my money, like make sure you bring an adequate size attache so that you can leave with all the money. So an attache is like, basically it's like a leather briefcase. So yeah, like you're not going to misspell business, but then be like, you know, bringing your attache to the bank. So it's very strange. And like, was somebody trying to make it seem like it was someone foreign or that? I, I don't know, but just to like jump ahead a little, they do all these writing samples and Patsy was never cleared. They could not, they couldn't clear Patsy. So they took her writing from a scrapbook and in the scrapbook, she just so happens to say attache. So it's like definitely a word she uses. So many people have studied this ransom note and the writing itself, like so many writing specialists have looked at this. It's, it's hard to say they can't clear her. She will not even admit to writing and like any of this, like she, she is again, she's got great lawyers. So she won't even admit to writing the scrapbook. Like she's like, well, maybe I did. I don't know. I don't really remember. But so the other thing, like, so that's another thing. Everybody who thinks they're guilty instantly points to but I will be honest with you. Like, let me give you a few other examples. Like they, they took writing samples for anybody who was a suspect. There are other people they also could not clear. So um, I'm going to go into detail about another person they couldn't clear. But one guy that I kind of left off was uh, that this guy was a little, he really was crazy. He, he was dealing with some mental illness and he was convinced, like he convinced himself that his boss killed John Bonet Ramsey. And the family had actually like visited the pizza. I think it was a pizza, some kind of restaurant. 
like, like that week before it happened. And this guy was like, so convinced that he kept writing like letters to, he kept writing letters to the police department saying like, you need to check my boss out. Like my boss did this. I'm sure of it. And so the cops checked the guy out and, and like, for sure the boss didn't do it. They cleared him right away, but they're like, is this guy just trying to insert himself in the, the crime? And like, they're looking at this guy and this guy actually scored higher. Like they thought that it was more probable that he wrote the ransom note than Patsy did. So that's really suspicious, but they, in the end, they cleared this guy. Like there was no way this guy did it, but it just kind of proves that this is a real, this is a soft science. And I don't know that we can exactly say she did it, but it is weird that they can't clear her. And, a, you know, a lot of experts have come out and said they thought she did it. Just the word attache is like, that's sticking out very, <laughs> that's such a strong word that I think not very many people know or would use. And they have evidence that she potentially wrote it in this other scrapbook, right? Like they, this word was in the scrapbook and that is a red flag for me. There's a few reasons that they point to that they think a woman wrote the note. They also, some have come out and said that they feel that maybe like a guy was sort of dictating it. So like, imagine if a guy was telling you like, write this and then like how a woman would actually like phrase that. Um, so but again, is that biased? Is that like, you think the parents did it? So like, this would be a great example of how and why, but moving on the ransom notes also filled with all these lines from other kidnapping movies, like speed, dirty, Harry, and in ransom, which was playing at the time. And they're, they're not like exact. So it's not like they're, you know, Googling it and like, you know, planning this all out. It's just like, you know, when you kind of paraphrase a, a line that you remember from a movie, but it's like really weird and it's really at times just pointless why they added all of this extra like extra garbage to it but those are in there they also say john use that good southern common sense of yours and people point this out as being weird because like publicly everybody knows that he came from atlanta he came from georgia but he's not southern actually he was born in michigan and he was raised in nebraska so he's, you know, I love a good Midwestern guy. I'm trying not to be biased though, but yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't Southern. So some point that out, like what, why, why would, why would anyone put that? This is getting so good. Oh man. <laughs> I, I promise I'm going to move on. This is one of those things we could have done a whole episode just on this ransom note, but the other thing is that they claim that Patsy changed the way she was writing A's after the ransom note came out. So like, like permanently in her writing, they claim that she tried to alter the way she wrote A's in it, but, but who knows if that's true. So let's move on to the autopsy, which is going to be less fun, unfortunately. So they did jump right onto the autopsy. They performed it within two days. And they find that there's a piece of pineapple that's undigested in our small intestines. And this is going to be really big because the parents have said that she was asleep. Like she, we did not feed her anything else after we left the white's house and there was no pineapple served there. The other big thing is we, we already mentioned that they found a bowl on, on the counter that actually had pineapple and milk in it, but 
for whatever reason, her friends come over and they, they've already cleaned this bowl up. So now you can't really get too much evidence off of it. They did end up finding some fingerprints on it, but it was Burke's and um, Patsy's. And they argue that, Hey, that could have happened when we were washing the dish or whatever that case might be. But it is just one thing to point out. It is John Bonet's like favorite snack. She loves pineapple. There are two marks on her face and on her back as well. And many think that this matches a stun gun. The uh, coroner said that he couldn't rule it out, that he couldn't say 100% for sure it was a stun gun, but that like the dimensions and everything did match. And I saw him and I compared it to other, you know, they had pictures of other stun gun, um, like wounds and it, it, it does shockingly look like it was from a stun gun. The other thing that's, you know, I mentioned already the ligature marks on the neck. So they used whoever did this used a garrote to actually strangle her. So do you know what a garrote is? No. So it's like a stick that you use to like basically tie the rope tighter, basically. So they can, people can't see what I'm doing and I'm glad they can't because it's, <laughs> I'm like showing you a choking. This is horrible. I'm like showing you how to choke a little girl. This is, I, I need to take a break. I think like, <laughs> All right. Well, now I have a, a clear example of what a garrote is. So, so the garrote was actually a paintbrush that was Patsy Ramsey's paintbrush. And this was, I mean, this was like pulled out of like her little art kit, which was only feet away from where the body was. This rope is so tightly tied around this poor little girl's neck that it's um, it's like in it's indented her skin. It's like in her skin at this point. So they find that she did die from strangle strangulation. The weird thing that they find is that there's a giant fracture in this little girl's head. She is six years old and there's an eight and a half inch long fracture in her skull. And they didn't know until they actually pulled her skin back because there was no blood or anything at the site. So they didn't know this horrible fracture had occurred, this horrible head injury. Then they find that there's trauma to her vaginal area. So they believe that she was sexually assaulted that night. And there's many that speculate that this is also proof of previous molestation. This is horrible. Like this is a very violent crime. This wasn't an accident this was, this is horrible. This is very traumatic. And you know, the cops will leak a lot of this information because they were leaking a lot of stuff to the, to the press and they'll later recant the molestation accusation. It's hard to get around there. No matter what, there was some trauma there. So this head wound was there blood or was her body like taken cleaned like they didn't re realize that this head wound was even there until they did the autopsy right or was right right you couldn't actually see it like you know what I mean like if you just looked at her you couldn't see it it wasn't until they actually looked at the skull that they could see she had gotten this horrible horrible fracture so does that mean that her body was like, it had to have been like cleaned or something, right? 
No, like you just could not see it. Like there, there, it didn't break the skin or anything. Oh, it just broke the okay. Skull. Okay. Okay. So honestly, it sounds like they were actually shocked. Like when they got in there, they, they were even, they were shocked. They weren't expecting that. I mean, they were pretty sure she died of strangula strangulation. I mean, you could see that, but they had no idea she'd been struck in the head. This is so sad. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, let's move on to the news because the autopsy is just, again, that, that, that could be another whole day episode and I, I would not want to be the one to record it. So if you want to volunteer for that one, be my guest. No, thank you. <laughs> so this would become, for obvious reasons, a huge news sensation. But four days after the murder, a pageant that JonBenet Ramsey had just been in actually sold the video to the paparazzi. So the very first video that was sold of hers was from a pageant that you like pay to enter your child in who should be like trying to keep your child safe. But at, at then, I mean, that's what really just catapulted it. Like four days after that's when it hit national news, when they had all these videos and pictures. And then at, after that, the paparazzi was hounding all these people. So these photographers and these parents were just like giving up all these pictures of her. That's where all these videos and pictures of her come from. There's from like these photographers and parents, cause they were paying like 700 a pop per you know, per picture. So they were just handing them over. They didn't care about this little girl. And this just really, I mean, it shocked the public. Like they were not used to seeing a six-year-old like this, like really sexualized. She had a lot of makeup on. She had these really skimpy outfits, you know, she's dancing around on stage and it just instantly made the public turn on the Ramses. Like they felt like if you could endanger your child and put her in this kind of stuff, like what else could you have done? And I think there was also sort of this mentality of like people thought somehow the Ramses had put these pictures out into the public and you know, it wasn't like they, they didn't leak any of these pictures. They didn't, these were supposed to be private pictures. Like these were never supposed to be in the public, but so six days after finding John Bonet, Patsy and John, they still haven't really talked to the cops much, but they decide that the best thing they can do is to do an interview on CNN. This was not a good idea. This was not a good approach. They, I mean, to be honest, it's like very obvious. They were probably like drugged up and hadn't slept, you know, they're just trying to get through the day. But a lot of people felt that it just seemed like not sincere and like, like maybe they were working with a PR person, you know, they felt like it was kind of scripted and they just felt that John didn't seem mad enough. Like he should be screaming, like trying to find his little girl. And so, I mean, it just really didn't help. The public just sort of tore them apart and the cops are making it clear. Like they're not cooperating. They won't talk to us, but they're on CNN. So not a good look for the Ramses at this point. Yeah. Not a good look. They also sort of complained about the cops. They said like, Hey, the cops aren't treating us well. They're not looking at anyone else. And like, this just wasn't the time where people wanted to like be very sympathetic to how the police were treating them. You know, they were sort of like, sit down and shut up. Like this is, you know, they weren't acting the way people expected them to act. They, so they really, I mean, they started to like, not only lose the support of the public, they did start to lose the support of people around them. And the police again, were really like, they were showing up at all the Ramsey's friends, all their family, anybody they ever potentially knew. And, you know, they were really laying down the great, the groundwork to say like, we, we think they killed 
we we're pretty sure that they killed her daughter. And, you know, the Ramseys are also pointing fingers right away They're You know, for to me, if they were like, you know, who do you think did this to your family? I, you know, it'd be hard for me to think of somebody who would want to do it, but the Ramseys like instantly are like, you know, we think it was the maid, like they were instantly pointing fingers and they even pointed fingers at their best friend. So they made a lot of enemies very quickly. And the police are just leaking information left and right. Like anything they could about the Ramseys. They're not leaking anything that could potentially not point to the Ramseys, but like any sort of information that comes in, any clues that come in about the Ramseys, it's being leaked. And the police even admit this was a strategy. They were convinced that if they could get the press to like, you know, hound the Ramseys so much that eventually one of them was going to flip on the other. So that was like their whole strategy. And they were terrified and shocked when it didn't work. Like they didn't know what to do at that point. It was like, oh, plan A didn't work. And we didn't really have a plan B. The police and the DA's office, I've already said it, they really messed up this case badly. And it's kind of for opposite reasons. Like I said, the police day one, it was the Ramseys. They 100% believed it. And the DA was sort of the opposite. Like the DA was like, the Ramseys are a rich, influent, um, you know, part of the Boulder community. And we need real proof before you're, you know, accusing them. And they were getting really sick of the police, like, you know, solely looking at the Ramseys and leaking all this information. And so they kind of weren't helping the police. Like the police need the DA to like get subpoenas to, um, you know, to help gather up all this information. And they just weren't like the DA is not working with them. So, I mean, it was really, if, if the cops and the DA aren't working together, like how, how do you have a case? It's like impossible. Kristen, how long have we been recording for at this point? I feel like uh, we're probably like hitting our episode cap, unfortunately. What do you think? I agree. I think we are. I think, um, we we're going to have to bring it to a close and we're going to have uh, to be continued. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I totally did not keep intending on putting out two parters, but as you can see, this is a huge case. We do have I, one more thing I think we should do tonight. Um, if you're down, I know you were not so excited about this, but one of the things that every single documentary and every case, every podcast, they all comment on the pineapple and milk. So everybody has commented on how weird it is and how disgusting it is, but nobody's ever tried it. And so I think that we should do a little bit of our own experiment and we have gotten pineapple and milk. And I think Kristen's face right now is like dreading it, but I think we should try this pineapple and milk. I'm excited. I like pineapple milkshakes. I think this is going to be, I don't think I've ever had a pineapple milkshake but I'm looking in this bowl and it is not looking good at all. <laughs> it's looking pretty disgusting, but, um, the things we do for the, for our friends. So let's, uh, I appreciate this. So let's like, let's pause it for a second and we'll, we'll eat some and then we'll come back. You know what? So I like cottage cheese. I know that sounds really disgusting, but I like cottage cheese and I like to eat cottage cheese with peaches and this kind of tastes like that, but like gross, like it's gross to me. <laughs> I kind of like it. The milk has like a pie. Oh no. The milk has like a pineapple taste. 
I get it, Chamonix. This is this isn't this isn't bad. Kristen's face is not agreeing with me. <laughs> no, I can't even. I took one bite and I was like, no. And I mean, I, I'm not kidding. I'm a big time lover of cottage cheese and peaches. And I was thinking, oh, it's going to be similar. No, it's not. Well, there you go. We've given our reviews on pineapple and milk. Feel free to try it. Um, if you look at Kristen's face, though, trying it, you probably will never, ever, ever <laughs> want to eat this as a treat. No. Okay. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this first half. In the next one, we'll jump into some of the theories and some of the suspects and just dig a little more into the case. But thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you later. And please follow us, rate us, review us, tell your friends. Uh, we appreciate all the support and we love you guys. Thanks for listening.